Welcome back to the Spacemakers podcast, a podcast started by seven friends around the world who met through their international church, the ICOC, about navigating and pointing out toxic church culture. I said this in the last episode, but if you are new here, we just wanted to let you guys know that things have kind of changed with Spacemakers from the first to the second season. We started off really tiptoeing in order to be heard, and just because we genuinely wanted to fight within the church to help change things that were hurting and bothering us and so many other people. But a lot of us, for many reasons, including personal reasons and reasons pertaining to the backlash we got from speaking up, have since left the church. So now as we're ending this podcast, we have learned, we have grown, we have changed, and we are just in this place where we don't feel like we need to tiptoe or apologize for being honest, even if that makes people mad. Um, So we hope you will still join us in kind of making space for marginalized voices and ideas, still coming at it out of a place of love, but not being afraid to make people mad. If that's your vibe, you're in the right space. So we're releasing an episode every weekend of Pride Month this year. So if you haven't listened to our first episode in the series, that's already out. It was honestly so moving for me to listen to. So I hope you guys give it a chance and um, listen to that one. It's a compilation of different stories from queer people who were in the ICOC. And it's probably a lot of perspectives that you might not have heard yet. This episode is going to be a little along the lines of the first episode, except it's going to be more of a deeper dive into Sebastian's story. We really wanted the first part of our series, and most of our series, honestly, to be platforming queer voices. I will touch more on this later, but just so everyone knows, the Spacemakers are, as a group, not all straight. I'm not going to go into that with too much detail because either way, I don't want people to listen to some of us more than others. But for this episode, since Sebastian is the only one who has publicly come out and talked about his sexuality, we wanted him to share his experience since we did promise you guys that in season one. Again, trigger warning for this episode, it is heavy in the same way that the first episode was and there are mentions of sexual assault. I'll talk more about my experience being Seb's friend in the fourth episode of this series, but I did witness a lot of what is going to be said in this episode, and I was listening the whole time he was recording, and I just wanted to say I'm really proud of him as one of my best friends for speaking out about this. I think it's really brave, and I think that he has a lot to say that is really worth hearing, so I really hope you guys genuinely listen with empathy. So with no further ado, here he is. Braver and bolder. Hi everyone, this is Seb, Sebastian Buck from Berlin, Germany. And you have heard quite a lot from me throughout the podcast. And these episodes that we're currently recording are probably the most personal to me. We are doing the LGBTQI plus series that we, I know, have promised you since season one. But we really just wanted to get it right, so that took a bit longer than expected. And in this episode, I just wanted to share my lived experience, uh, that of a gay man in the church, and then also just a couple of thoughts and things I've had on my mind for quite a while. Why is the white man doing this episode? Very valid question. Um, We 
talked about this quite a lot, but I think I've been the one that has brought this up quite a lot in the Space Makers podcast thus far. So for the sake of continuity, uh, we thought it would make sense for me to talk this through. And I've played quite an active role in this discourse within the ICOC for the past years. So I feel the need to rectify a couple of things that I've said and have been standing for in my life. Let's start at the very beginning, my childhood. I was someone, I was, I guess, the odd kid out. And it started off with little, you know, teasing here and there, being called names, you know, just not really being picked for group projects or being ignored on the playground. And it intensified as time went on. And it peaked with one experience in particular where it was after school and everybody was playing table tennis at the time. And one thing led to another and I ended up being held down on the ping pong table um, by like 10 different guys. They put grass in my mouth and just kind of beat me up. Um, Obviously they were all 11 year olds, but you know, they just used their like ping pong rackets to like hit me. And I went home pretty bruised. Um, And that was the point for me where I told my mom about what was going on and we decided it's time to transfer. So at that new school, uh, things were good at first. We, um, I was in a class with uh, 24 girls and four guys and I got along very well with girls. I got to make a lot of music, uh, truly was happy for the first time in a very long time. However, then the bullying kind of started up again, but this time for different reasons. I was hanging out with a lot of girls. I was quite a flamboyant child, so people started associating me as a gay kid, which I didn't really know what that meant at 11 years old, but I just kind of took it and denied it. That led to me just kind of pondering what that meant and kind of slowly realizing for myself that there might be some truth to that statement. Then there was one situation where I was left alone at home and I was browsing the computer and just exploring the internet. And I was clicking around, I was typing in gay, and I ended up on a porn website where I was watching men having intercourse And that experience ended in me accidentally downloading a virus to my dad's laptop, which at the time I didn't know that it was a virus, but it was basically like a screen that said, you have violated international law by watching porn illegally. And it was now looking back very apparent that it was a scam because you had to like pay by um, like PayPal to like get the block removed. So I was very young and innocent and didn't know better. But that's the reason I had to basically come out to my parents and told them like, oh yeah, I was like watching gay porn and that's why there's a virus on your computer. I was mortified. I remember cold sweating, locking myself in my room, being scared of my parents coming home. I think looking back, it was the scariest moment of my life because I didn't know what was going to happen. I only 
my only association with being gay was that it's something gross, which, you know, that's what they told me in school. So I had no idea what they were going to do. And, you know, I, I told them and they didn't yell at me. They didn't, you know, throw a fit per se, but you could tell that it was something they were grossed out by. And you could tell that they didn't understand and you could tell that it was a problem to be fixed. And I think that that truly was traumatic in the way that to this day, I struggle with the idea of being a burden wherever I go or being someone unwanted in the way I am. And I can pretty much exactly pinpoint all of these core fears and insecurities of mine to this moment because it, that moment, all my fears were validated because I told them my truth and who I am. And that responds to me saying, this is me, this is what I'm attracted to, was this is something we need to fix. This is something we need to change about you. So that was quite traumatic just in the sense of I was not ready to talk about it, but I had to. And the response they had was not great. It was very much making me feel like a problem and an inconvenience. It was very much the kind of standard Christian narrative you would hear about. It's probably just a phase. You're just confused. Showing me scriptures about, you know, how Jesus loves me anyways, even if I feel like I'm gay. And it was just a very confusing time because the two data points at that time I had about my sexuality were from school and from my parents, and both of which suggested to me that it was a disgrace, that my feelings were in some way something to be ashamed of and something to be changed and and to some degree also not a real thing and just a fantasy of mine that I've created in my head. So that was an extremely confusing time for me. However, that experience, me verbalizing it for the first time to my parents also led to me actually telling a close friend of mine at the time in high school um, or sorry, middle school, but in Germany, middle school and in high school, it's one school. So it's just eight years. So if I refer to either one, it's the same thing. But uh, I told her about it and I was like, I think, I think I'm gay. And that was in the moment an extremely freeing experience that turned out to be an extremely traumatic one as she went on to tell the whole school what I just told her. And I was 12 years old. I already was getting bullied for being gay so now the whole school had another reason to believe that I was actually gay, which in that case was true. So all the little teasing turned into me entering locker rooms and guys pulling up their shirts and being like, oh, do you like that? And them cornering me, people calling me gay in the hallway and laughing about me and me spending every waking second of my existence denying who I was. And I just remember all the times a day I would say, I'm not gay. I'm not gay. And it would be, I mean, dozens of times a day. 
And I was exhausted and extremely depressed and embarrassed about everything that I was. So, yeah, I think the topic of shame was a huge one for me. Just being associated with that felt disgusting and I was embarrassed. But then I found out that my parents decided to move to Berlin when I was 13, um, which was a very welcome surprise at the time. I was very excited to leave the school and actually get a third chance of, you know, trying to make friends and being myself. So at that new school, I remember very vividly how I wanted to make sure that no one would think that I was gay. So I became a pathological liar. I made up a fake girlfriend, made up fake hobbies, really made sure that no one would even have the association with me and homosexuality, which um, sadly worked. And I still didn't have any friends though, because I still wasn't being authentic. And I think people could tell, and I wasn't a very likable person either, because I was just insecure and very concerned with appearances and making sure that no one would ever critique me or run all over me again the way, you know, my previous two schools I was at had been. So I invested all my time that I had in church. I decided that I'm going to be an A-star church kid. So what did that mean? It meant leading worship. It meant studying the Bible to, you know, become the best Christian the church had seen. It meant organizing events and going to conferences and all of that. Um, because that's what felt right at the time. And that's the only thing that gave me the validation I was craving so much from the rest of the world. So when we moved to Berlin, my parents were also quite invested in me making friends within the church and organized a couple of friend dates for me. And one of them was with an older guy. And that experience was quite traumatic as he slept over. And that night ended up being my first sexual experience that um, was not consensual, which truly was a nightmare. And I couldn't tell anyone because now my only safe space that I had left, which was the church at the time, also had fallen apart. And I just added another data point to my sexuality because the two other ones I had thus far were from my parents, which were, you know, it's a phase. It's something we need to fix. And from school, which was, you're disgusting. And the third one now being this, that being the first experience, which just seemed to validate everything people were saying about, you know, being gay and how it's disgusting and how it's so gross because my first experience was exactly that. I felt at fault for what had happened. I felt like it was me and it took me a very long time to actually realize that it wasn't consensual. I really thought for four years that it is something I did and something I wanted because thinking about it in that light made it more bearable. 
um, it made it feel more like I had control over that moment. And I'd rather hate myself in that way than having to admit that I didn't have control in that moment. So the fear of being gay truly was just amplified through it because that was the only association I had with it. I thought, okay, going forward, my whole life will be just one traumatic event after the next. And I swore to myself that I'll never talk to anyone about what had happened and also never talk to anyone about being gay ever again because it was just too painful and everything that had ever come from me being honest and me being true to myself was pain. So I moved on. I didn't tell a soul. And as I said earlier, I was very invested in church and continued to do so. I, you know, led songs, organized conferences, and at some point even got a scholarship to go to the United States. So this was basic, I'm kind of skipping over this, but this was three years of me being miserable, kind of dealing with this pain all on my own. And then I went to the U.S. for a leadership program. It was basically a five-week program designed for the next generation of Christian leaders within the church to give them mentorship and help them basically, hopefully, lead churches one day, essentially. And it was a very intense program. It was my first time outside of Europe, so very exciting times for me. Um and I was completely out of my comfort zone, which turned out to be an amazing opportunity. There, I made amazing friends and met one guy in particular, which we didn't get along at first at all. <laughs> we really hated each other. Um, but that turned out to be because we were actually quite similar. And I think that's something that happens quite often. And we started becoming friends. We started talking every night till 3 a.m. And that guy turned out to be gay as well. And even though nothing ever happened between the two of us, we did fall in love. And I look back at that summer as my first love. And it was quite a beautiful thing in the beginning. It was just so exciting having someone that truly understands everything I was going through. He was also raised in the church, so there was so much understanding. I wouldn't even have to finish my sentences and he would understand what I had gone through and how I felt. And he was the first person I told about what had happened to me when I was younger. So that was such a healing experience, being able to verbalize all these things and being understood and being told that it's natural and not my fault. So that summer, I actually started telling other people as well. That was the summer I decided, well, apparently it's not a bad thing. And that was a quite healing experience because I got to tell people, you know, I am gay. Um, back then, I was still of the conviction that, you know, living a homosexual life is a sin. So I told everyone, like, 
yes, I'm, I'm gay, but I'm not acting on it, which was a huge first step. It was a huge accomplishment and not being ashamed of it anymore to that extent was an amazing experience. And I think one that allowed me to step into myself in a major way for the first time in my life. However, that fairy tale summer uh, quickly turned out to be more and more of a nightmare as things started happening. Um, there was one situation in particular where me and him were sitting outside just chatting and at nighttime, one of the leaders of the camp called me and we talked and he said that apparently someone saw us making out in public, which was not true. Um, and then he told me that, just so you know, in India, you would have been murdered for being gay. And that was kind of a rough awakening because it led to him and me, you know, what wasn't a sexual thing in the first place to be very undermined by just these concerns about people's opinions and concerns about optics of things. So I increasingly became insecure and um, with the summer being over, eventually we had to, you know, go back to our homes. Mine was back in Berlin and I decided to cut all communications with him because I just couldn't take it and I was advised to do so by my local church leaders because they said, well, that's the healthy thing to do and we don't want you to get hurt. And what was so confusing about this whole experience was that me and him were completely aligned when it comes to the expectations of church, when it comes to a pure relationship. Nothing ever happened between us. We just talked but then having to bring together this idea that what I was feeling was inherently sinful when my lived reality was just love. I was simply in love with this guy and that was ruined by the experience I've had around me and nobody was able to give me a good reason for why it's a bad thing. Nobody was able to tell me, here's how what you're doing is bad. But I still believed it because that was what I was raised in. And we weren't raised to be critical thinkers. We were raised to accept what we were told. So I did. And I broke up all communications. And that's how that ended. And that was you know, my first association, you know, what could have been my first positive association with being a gay man turned out to be another negative one, which again was a quite heavy hit. So after that time, I returned to Berlin and I decided to come out in church and also in high school, both very interesting experiences. In church, I came out as same-sex attracted because I was taught that being gay implies that I'm acting on it, and same-sex attraction makes it clear that I'm trying to pursue a godly life. In high school, I just plainly came out as gay because that's what people understood. 
the reaction in church was basically, we love you as long as you don't act on it. Which sounds like a simple caveat, but really is an immense ask. And then in high school, I was very public about it and had another round of homophobic guys come after me. However, at that point, I was very well trained in how to deal with them because this was my third rodeo. And I just remember secretly recording them on my iPhone whenever they were being homophobic and just showed those recordings to the principal and got them expelled. So nothing sassy 16-year-old Sebastian couldn't take at that time. With church, it was a little more complicated because I was the first public person that really took up space when it came to the issue, which came with a lot of people being very problematic about it. A couple of examples include some parents not wanting me around their children because they thought I was a pedophile. And others included examples where people would come up to me and give me advice along the lines of, well, Jesus was born in the wrong body. And, you know, I know that as a gay person, you feel like you're a woman. So maybe it's a comfortable thought for you that Jesus as a God was born in the body of a human. So there was a complete lack of awareness for the issue. And I had to basically educate everyone on what it is that I was feeling and how I wanted to be addressed. And years of being told that it is a sin do really mess with your head because I remember there was always this internal struggle of I can't make a rational argument for why it's bad what I'm feeling. I don't need the Bible to argue why killing someone is bad. I don't. I don't need the Bible to argue why it's bad to cheat on your wife. These are objectively bad things. And I think we can all agree, we do not need the Bible to argue that those things are wrong. And to this day, I haven't heard an argument that actually helped me understand why it would be a bad thing for me to be in love with another man, because that's all it is, love. So I took on the role of the token gay guy. I was talking about it everywhere. I was talking at conferences. I was, you know, becoming part of a ministry that was dealing with this topic. I was the one that was called if anyone had any questions about it. And I remember at the time I was 18 and this immense burden of, I feel like I need to be talking about this to everyone at all times because nobody else is. But at the same time, I'm not even sure what I believe in. But then again, I don't feel like I have the luxury of questioning what I believe because everybody has already told me that it's so crystal clear in the Bible. And I remember reading the Bible and I've studied this topic for years, every day, and it just wasn't clear. Because questions like, well, the Old Testament says it's a sin, but then it also talks about women wearing headscarves. Why are we choosing one and not the other? Or then other doubts coming up about, well, the New Testament, the word that is used for homosexuality 
is pedophilia. That is just a fact. The word homosexuality was not added to the Bible until the 20th century. So all these concerns that I had in the back of my mind, I never felt like I had the luxury of exploring because there was this responsibility placed on me to be the spokesman for this issue. And I felt like I couldn't let anyone down. And this was at 18 years old. So I was miserable and I was dealing with this duality of how can I understand what I actually believe while still making sure that people are being taken care of the way that I was not. But then now looking back, I realized that I was just contributing to the overall problem because then people were using me as an example to their gay kids and were saying, well, look, Sebastian is gay and he's a Christian. You don't have to worry. You can be like him. And that is something that I'm deeply ashamed about, that that's what I was used for to basically do the same harm that was done to me to other kids. So all that to say, that was me in my last year of high school. And then I went off to college where, you know, I just decided to drown all of my emotions in work all this confusion, all this duality and frustration of all my friends are dating, all my friends are talking about who they like, while I had decided for myself that I will remain single for the rest of my life was terrible. I remember just crying most nights of the week because I was so angry, but then to the outside world, I had to pretend like everything was fine because I was getting praised for being the gay Christian kid. I was put on a pedestal and people were telling me, you're so brave, you're so strong for going through this. So in a weird way, the very thing that was making me miserable gave me validation, which became this weird cycle of me getting addicted to the validation that came from me being miserable. And that was a cycle I lived through for a very, very long time. So then throughout my university studies, COVID hit. And that was truly the time where I started reflecting because all the systems that I was a part of, all the meetings, all the different workshops and conferences that I was speaking at, everything was canceled. So that truly gave me the space for the first time to actually ponder all the doubts I've been having for years, but always was too scared to explore. And I remember that throughout COVID, I was part of a study group. And the idea behind it was Let's get a bunch of people together and study the topic of homosexuality from a biblical standpoint. And it was very well-respected leaders within the International Church of Christ, like biblical scholars, church leaders, world sector leaders. So this caliber of people were in this group. And I remember we went through every scripture that talked about homosexuality one by one. And... 
as I kind of hinted towards earlier, I was addressing my doubts along the lines of, well, in the Old Testament, why are we being so selective? We're not living according to the whole Old Testament. Why are we choosing this particular issue? And then for the New Testament, all those scriptures that talk about it were, one, like the word is just not homosexuality, it's pedophilia. And then second, the scriptures where it talks about men lying with men were only addressed to the Roman churches where, you know, sex parties and pedophilia, so like older men having little boys for playtime, was very common. And it doesn't appear in any other context. So I was just very confused. And the verdict of that group actually was that the Bible doesn't clearly say that it's a sin. And I remember sitting there just hearing all these people that I've respected for years that I've read books of and asking them, well, what does that mean for me? Because I was the only gay kid in that round. And all of them just said, well, just keep doing what you're doing. That's just the safe route. And I think that's the way we've approached this topic is telling people, let's just do it the way we've done it for years but you don't understand what you're doing to people with that because it's not working. I was miserable. I wasn't suicidal, but I know I would have been if I stayed any longer than I did. And for me, there was a point when I just realized for myself that if this is the price I need to pay, it's not worth it. It simply isn't. Because the mental turmoil you go through when your very being is portrayed as something sinful truly is unbearable. It truly is the most unhealthy way of being because the way you look at the world and the way you look at yourself is very much through the lens of my like very being is a sin. So when COVID happened, I took a step away from church and really started thinking it through and came to the conclusion, well, if the Bible isn't clear on this, why should my default be to deny myself love? Why should I do that just for the sake of being sure? So I started going on dates, and <laughs> I remember I had this very funny conversation with a dear friend of mine, who she was the one, you know, I was grabbing coffee with before my first date. And I, you know, I remember being very blue eyed and just telling her, but like, what if the guy wants to have sex with me? And I was mortified of, you know, people just wanting to sleep with me and all these quite irrational concerns. And she was like, Sebastian, you're grabbing coffee with this man. You're in public. What, first of all, logistically, how would that even work? 
Second of all, not everyone is just trying to have sex with you. And I think that was another thing I had to unpack for myself because the way I was raised to look at the world was very much to believe that everybody just wants to have sex with you. And I think that's also the view I had on a, like just gay men. It was everyone just wants sex. And the interesting experience for me now is actually now that I'm not an active member of church anymore, I actually talk less about sex. Sex was such a dominating topic in D groups and in sermons and just lessons and general conversation. But now that I'm actually removed from that environment, I am in a place where, yes, I talk about it in a healthy amount, but it doesn't occupy my mental capacity the way it dominated it while I was still a member of church. And I think that's something to think about for everyone. Why are we so obsessed with sex and why do we, as a church, look at the rest of the world like all they care about is sex? And I think that's an extremely dangerous and wrong way to look at it because it's not the truth. And it just leads to people losing touch with reality because if that's the way you're looking at people, if that's your first association, then you're not looking at them as the, at them as people. You're looking at them as sex objects. And I don't think that that's the healthy way to go about it. And I don't think it leads to people having healthy relationships with other people, plain and simple. So me going on dates actually was an extremely healthy experience because I think there was a time where I realized for myself that I don't really have any friends. Like, genuine friends that really would love me the way I am. And I was extremely lucky because um, one of my first dates was with a guy and we got along extremely well. It turned out to be completely platonic and now he's one of my best friends and I will be forever grateful to him because he was the one that introduced me to just queer culture who introduced me to other queer men and women and they thems and it was a beautiful experience just getting to go to pride parades and seeing that this world that I was taught that was just about sex and sleeping with men was truly so much more it was a loving community that truly cared about me and accepted me for who I was which was an extremely healing experience and one that I'll be forever grateful for. And these people are the ones that I surround myself with now because I can be who I want to be. I can be my truest self and they love and respect me for who I am. So that truly was life-changing. So now, where am I at? I truly am the happiest I've ever been. I'm not missing anything. I am completely fulfilled. I have my dream job, truly, and have the best friends in the world. I'm currently in New York visiting some of my best friends, and life is perfect. Do I have things to work through? Of course. Yes, I do. I have regular panic attacks. I do still have a hard time trusting myself because... 
for a very long time in my life, I was taught that the way I perceive the world and the way that I feel is sinful or wrong. So now in a lot of situations, even minor ones, I just don't trust that my emotions and perspectives are valid and that's something to really work through. But with that being said, those are minor things to compare to the misery I, I was experiencing earlier. And I'm truly excited to just say that my life did start a bit later. It started at 21. But right now I truly get to live it to its fullest extent. And I know what I believe in. I know what I stand for. And I know who I am. And I get to unapologetically be myself. And that's truly been the biggest privilege of my life thus far. So why did I just share all of that? The truth of the matter is that the dialogue around this topic has been quite dominated by one singular perspective. And we simply want to provide a new one and specifically a new perspective of someone who has lived through the ideal model on paper. I stuck to the protocol but then also of someone who decided to break away and has kind of both data points to compare and the lessons I learned from that comparison. So I think, again, it's just very important for me to say that I had it easy. On the spectrum of experiences within the LGBTQIA plus community, I am a white gay man. I am on top of the food chain and though my life was hard, and I don't want to invalidate that, in the grand scheme of things, the story that I just told you is one of the most easily stomachable you will hear. Because I had privilege and I was protected just by the color of my skin, by my gender identity, and also by the fact that I just was grown or that I got to grow up in a very privileged context, which was the first world. So just please keep that in mind as we're talking about this, that there are people around you that are suffering a lot. So let's talk about being gay at large. I think there's a couple of things that I would like to get off my chest at this point. The core problem of the International Church of Christ, when it comes to this topic, is that I don't think most people believe it's a real thing. What do I mean when I say that? I publicly came out as gay in the church when I was 16 years old. The number of times that after that I was asked by people, is there any girl you're interested in? Have you taken a sister on a date lately? is absurd. Because when I would respond with, well, I'm gay, obviously not, they're like, but like, maybe there is a girl for you out there someday. It wasn't respected. It wasn't understood to be a real thing. People understood it as a phase, a confusion, or a choice. The thing about it, though, is, and I know a lot of people that listen to this truly believe that it's a choice. Why would I choose this? I just came out in high school three times just to be bullied 
every single time. Why would I do this to myself? I was miserable. I got nothing out of it. Nothing. No one liked me because of it. No one thought it's cool. So it is not even an easy thing to come out in the world we live in yet. And I know it's gotten better since I've been in high school because that was 10 years ago at this point. However, it is still not an easy thing to do. So for you to sit there and truly think that one, it's not a real thing or a choice or me following a trend is ridiculous because there's nothing I got out of it. Nothing. The other argument I love to hear when it comes to being gay is the whole idea of, oh, it's unnatural. It's not a natural occurrence. The simple counter-argument to that to me is, when did you realize you were straight? Because the way you only have ever been attracted to the opposite gender, the same way I've always only been attracted to the same gender. I've never had the experience of being attracted to a woman. I never have. So for you to sit there and for some to somehow believe that your perceived worldview is in some way superior to mine is inherently problematic and also truly doesn't hold any logical value. The other component to the argument of it being unnatural is the question of, well, if it's unnatural, why has homosexuality been observed in hundreds of animal species? Because the simple counter-argument to what you're saying is, if it were unnatural, there shouldn't be a single gay animal on the planet. There shouldn't be, because it's unnatural. So, therefore, it can't occur in nature. That's the very thing you're saying. But it is. So I would just challenge that perspective from a plain biological point of view. And at this point, I mean, the statistic keeps changing, but the last time I checked, 10% of the population identifies as queer. So to tell me that one in 10 people just woke up one morning and decided that they are gay seems a bit ridiculous. And I do want to challenge your perspective on this as well. If you truly can believe that one in 10 people is just a whoopsie daisy, like that is statistically quite significant of you to say, especially if we look at the global population. The other thing that I wanted to kind of touch upon is this idea of same-sex attraction. And I think that's something that's been preached to me that I have been preaching as someone who was an avid tokenizer of this whole topic. But the argument doesn't really hold because what is preached is that being same-sex attracted is not a sin. It's a sin to live it out. And the analogy that is often used in this context is the one of alcoholism. And that's one that I was told many times where I was told that you can choose to grab the bottle and that would be a sin, but to simply crave the bottle is not. But that analogy 
straight up doesn't hold because for someone to become an alcoholic, they must choose to get drunk for the first time. They're not an alcoholic by birth. Being gay is something you're born with. It is something that you inherently are. I do not agree that homosexuality should be your entire personality, and it is not for me. I am so interesting. <laughs> I'm way more interesting than bisexuality. But the fact of the matter remains that the way that I was taught to think about my sexuality is that it's not a part of me, and that just doesn't hold. For straight people, their sexuality is also part of their personality and all the attributes associated with it as well. Like being a father, like being in love, like people spend their days, you know, talking about who they like and who they're interested in. It takes up a lot of space, which inherently makes it a part of you. So for you to make this academic distinction between, you know, there is attraction, but the attraction isn't a part of you, that doesn't help me. Because just whether it is a part of me or not, you're still saying that my inherent nature is sinful and wrong. And for that to be the core of my belief system for decades was completely destructive to my mental health, to my worldview, and to so many other people's perspective as well. And I think one thing we have to remember is I do understand that this concept of you know, you're, it's, it's fine to be same-sex attracted as long as you don't act it out. I know that sounds wonderful on paper and like it is a beautiful, you know, theoretical construct you've created, but the lived experience is not. You're causing people to be miserable. People are depressed, people are anxious, people are suicidal. And that's the reality of the doctrine you have been preaching. And I need you to hear this. People are dying. I know multiple people that have committed suicide as a direct result of this doctrine. And this is not because they were weak-minded or not committed to the church. This is because they couldn't make sense of this weird duality that has been preached for decades. So I want to appeal to all of you, what you're doing is hurting people. What you're doing has hurt me, and I am one of probably the best case examples. So if I'm the best case, think long and hard about how miserable other people must be. I don't know a single person, and I've talked to hundreds, and this is not an exaggeration, I've talked to hundreds of people within the church that are all miserable and most of them have now left the church. And the people that are still in the church are not happy. And not happy might be an understatement. They are miserable as well. And don't think that life is worth living, which is extremely concerning. And you should all be concerned about the doctrine that has been spread for years and actually critically question whether it's been working because it has not been. And if so many people cannot make it work, like think about the think think about it this way. If this whole group of people 
for some reason is not listening to the gospel, is for some reason not getting baptized, maybe the problem isn't the people. Maybe the problem is you. And that's something I would like you to think about. And then lastly, I want to talk about the organization that was started to specifically address this issue. You, as a group, have decided to have the story of one man be the example used as a guide to every young person that I know who is part of the LGBTQIA plus community. And you're lazy for that. The way every church in 2016 had one Sunday in a year where they flew in one preacher to tell a story and then called it a day is lazy. And you're wrong for that. And it shows in everything you're doing that you don't actually know how to deal with any of us. There's a reason there has not been a single LGBTQI plus person that has joined the church, maybe one or two here and there. But if you really look at your stats, 10% of your membership should be a member of the LGBTQI plus community. So why has that not been working is the real question. The other thing that we really have to call by name is the narrative that you've been preaching. It is conversion therapy. We need to call it by name. The ICOC is preaching conversion therapy. Conversion therapy, by definition, is the practice of attempting to cause a non-heterosexual person to become heterosexual by using psychoanalysis, behavior modification, or spiritual counseling. That is exactly what you're doing. Let's break down the narrative that I was taught. Okay, Sebastian, so you're same-sex attracted, not gay. Let's start there because being gay sounds like you're acting on it. Now, let's also make sure that the same-sex attraction is actually not part of you. It's just an attraction. It's nothing that kind of infringes upon your life on a day-to-day basis. Next up, let's talk about your future. There's two options. One, you marry a woman and you're just going to be happy with her and just have a blissful non-sexual life, or you can be abstinent. Those are your two options. That is conversion therapy. Point blank. That is what you're doing. It should be illegal, and it leads people to be miserable. Again, I am happy and proud to have made it out alive, and I mean that with my whole heart. There is so many other examples of people that have been hurt by this. And for you to stand here and play the victim of liberalism is truly the cherry on top because people just want their basic human rights to be respective. And then last but not least, I want to talk to the people that agree with me and consider themselves allies, but are part of the church. You're not an ally. And you can't be until you leave. 
If you truly understood what this organization has been doing to members of the LGBTQIA plus community, if you truly understood the suffering, the anxiety, depression, and hurt caused by the teaching of this church, you would, one, either do everything in your power to change it, or two, leave. If you're not doing one of the two, you're not an ally, and you're actually probably the worst of the two because people that genuinely believe that they're preaching, at least they're being authentic, you're sitting in the sidelines silently agreeing with me, but then paying your dues every Sunday to an organization that actively supports conversion therapy. And it needs to stop. There's a reason there's currently five lawsuits being sued where conversion therapy is mentioned as well. From a legal standpoint, our practices have been identified as conversion therapy. We have the legal documents to prove it. You can read them up yourself. Just Google the ICOC lawsuit and you can read through them. So I want you to understand that you need to completely change the way you're having this discourse. It is dangerous. It has been causing people to die. And it is truly in no way justifiable with the Bible. I mean, I don't really know what else to add to that. I just really hope that wherever you land in your beliefs, that you at least hear these stories that we have shared with you and that you really listen. We will cover Bible stuff in the next episode, but we believe that Jesus always held loving people over following rules and religious texts. So that's why we wanted to start off our series focusing on people and hearing them without judgment. Next week's episode will be a deep dive, doing our best to answer questions like, what does the Bible say about this, as well as important historical and social information? Again, we're not here to be the end-all be-all experts on queer issues, so please go to our resources and learn from these amazing people and queer voices. Our last episode in the series will be the Spacemakers talking about our beliefs on this subject, as well as us answering some of your submitted questions. Thank you guys so much for listening, and as always, thank you for coming to our space. Braver and bolder.